Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Piki mai kake mai and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance tēnei. Tonight, we are all about the looming antibiotic crisis. The Royal Society Te Aparangi recently produced a report on antimicrobial resistance, implications for New Zealanders. The report says that without urgent action, infections caused by antimicrobial resistant organisms could annually kill 10 million people globally by 2050. And it's also an issue that involves the farming and horticulture industries. To find out more about the size of the problem and what it means for us here in New Zealand, I've convened an Our Changing World Summit with three of the experts who helped write that report. Susie Wiles is a microbiologist at the University of Auckland. She's an expert in tuberculosis and is hunting for possible new antibiotics. She's also the author of the recent book, Antibiotic Resistance, The End of Modern Medicine. Joshua Freeman is a clinical microbiologist who has worked in Auckland and Christchurch. He specialises in the diagnosis and treatment of infections. Nigel French is director of the Infectious Disease Research Centre at Massey University. He's a vet specialising in infectious diseases in animals, as well as diseases that can be passed on to humans. Now, just before we kick off, apologies for the quality of the Skype connection in places. But here's Susie with a quick rundown on what we mean by antimicrobial. So antimicrobials are essentially medicines, compounds that kill or stop the growth of microbes. And these are then further divided into those that kill viruses, so known as antivirals, those that kill uh, fungi, antifungals, those that kill parasites, antiparasitics, and then those that kill bacteria, which we call antibiotics. Now, how many different kinds of antimicrobials do we have? Well, there'll be hundreds of different compounds, but actually a very limited number of classes. For example, the antibiotics, there's probably only about 12 different classes of antibiotics um, that work in particular ways. And so some of those will work against lots of different kinds of bacteria. We call those broad spectrum. Um, others will uh, be much more focused and work on smaller numbers of, of bacteria. We call those narrow spectrum. For the viruses and antivirals, the, the medicines more target very specific things that specific viruses have. So there are um, usually specific ones that target different kinds of diseases. One of the issues that we are facing is antimicrobial resistance. So can you describe very quickly to me what that is and, and what's happening globally in terms of that? 
So resistance is essentially when those medicines don't work. And some organisms can be what is sort of intrinsically resistant. So they, they just don't have the thing that that medicine works against. And then others have what we uh, we call more acquired resistance. So they become resistant to the, the drugs that would have normally killed them. And they can do this by mutating, so sort of by chance. But they can also do this by picking up these resistance mechanisms, I guess, genes and things that can, that can make organisms resistant. And this is something that is, the bacteria do especially well. So around the world, it's a it's a, essentially a global crisis. There are resistant organisms uh, basically everywhere that we look, um, some in more countries than others. But actually, a lot of countries don't even have the mechanisms to measure resistance. So we really actually don't even know how bad it could be. Now, closer to home, Josh, let's bring you in here. You work in a hospital situation. What is the situation with antimicrobial resistance here in New Zealand and how does that impact on your work in a hospital setting? Well, let's just think about the last 10 years um, that I've been sort of working in this setting. We've seen major changes. I'll focus on a particular example of resistant bacteria. We call these ESBL and I think they're an interesting illustration of the issue. Maybe 10, 15 years ago, we would occasionally see these organisms and we considered them to be exotic. These are organisms that commonly cause infections, but we have to reach for the very last line of antibiotics, the sort of very, very broad spectrum antibiotic that Susie explained that we sometimes need. Now, these ESBLs, we only saw them occasionally back 15 years ago. They were considered a very exotic. It was something that we all sort of took note of and it was quite a big deal. Um, And now, 15 years later, we see these every day. Every year, we see a a slightly greater range of infections that they're causing, complex infections uh, following surgery and that sort of thing. Whereas earlier on, we were seeing them primarily causing uh, urinary tract infections, simple urinary tract infections, perhaps in people who had travelled or uh, something like that. And now they're becoming far more prevalent and widespread. Um, So that's got a real problem. Now, with ESBLs, we still have this last-line antibiotic that we can use, which is a very effective antibiotic. And so I guess while it's a major problem, we can still use this antibiotic, and uh, that, in a way, is is reassuring. The concern is uh, the kind of next line of resistance, a similar group of bacteria, uh, but they are resistant even to this last line of very broad-spectrum antibiotics which we call the carbapenems. Now, these are, uh, this is where we have this next line of resistance called carbapenemase producing enterobacteriaceae. Sorry, a bit of a mouthful, but, or CPE. And uh, we are seeing these more and more, just a few here and there, but a few more each year. And um, so it's concerning the pattern that we're seeing here. It's similar to what we, uh, the situation, I guess, 15 years ago with these ESBLs. And the concern, of course, is that these CPE uh, follow a similar path to the to what we've seen with the ESBLs, and that would cause real major problems in hospital settings. So basically what I hear you're saying is we're running out of drugs. Well, for CPE, there's really only uh, one, maybe two drugs that can be used to treat it. And one of those drugs was largely abandoned in the 1970s because of concerns about toxicity, and we're kind of having to... Uh, bring it back into use, dust it off the the shelf, so to speak, and uh, learn how to use it again. But there are concerns about uh, toxicities with that drug, tolerance issues, and it's 
uh, effectiveness at treating the sort of range of infections that we're seeing. So it's pretty tenuous uh, with just one, possibly two drugs uh, to treat a lot of these infections. One of the other aspects around resistance is that while we may still be able to treat some infections, what you treat them with might have changed. So something that, you know, 10 years ago might have been an oral prescription, fairly easy to take, might now actually require people to be in hospital, you know, hooked up to a drip or on something that's you know, much less palatable, much more difficult to give, might be an injection. So there's that aspect too, that even though we still have some drugs, there might be, yeah, as Josh said, nastier drugs, more toxic drugs, or more expensive, more difficult to give. So, Nigel, I'll bring you in here. We've been really talking about people here and human health, but uh, antimicrobials are used for things like pets and in, in the farming industry. Can you tell me a little bit about the role of antimicrobials there, how we use them and uh, where we stand at the moment? Antibiotics are used for the treatment of animals, so they'll be used for pets and for farm animals for the treatment of animals that are sick with a particular condition and animals suffer from very similar diseases to humans so they require a sa the same approach to try and treat them effectively. Uh, antibiotics are also used uh, prophylactically so they're used to prevent the onset of infection in groups of animals and they may also be used in groups of animals. If one animal gets sick you might decide to treat the whole flock or herd or group of animals to prevent all of them getting sick. So the same Classes of antibiotics are used in animals, not always necessarily the same antibiotic, but there is concern about the use of antibiotics in animals, even in the same class, may confirm resistance to antibiotics that are critically important for human health. Um, so this requires uh, what's called the One Health approach. So this is something that the WHO and other organizations have embraced, which is the need really to consider human health alongside animal health and environmental health, recognising that all are inextricably linked, and particularly when we're dealing with issues such as antimicrobial resistance. Is it fair to say that in New Zealand we're reasonably modest in the amount of antimicrobials we use with animals compared to some overseas countries where their farming mechanisms are much more intensive? That's right. If you compare, there was a recent study that compared New Zealand with other equivalent countries around the world, kind of OECD countries. And that showed that New Zealand was a relatively low user of antibiotics when you measure it per kilogram of body mass or biomass of the animals. Obviously, we have a lot of animals compared to humans, um, so you need to kind of compare it relatively. So on a global scale, we rated the third best in terms of our use of antimicrobials per kilogram of biomass. There were only two other countries that used fewer antimicrobials per kilogram of biomass, and that was, I think it was Norway and Iceland. So in terms of animals, Josh, we're quite good. What's our antimicrobial use like in people compared to the rest of the world? Well, there has been some work on this which suggests that uh, community use is, is relatively high in New Zealand uh, compared to other parts of the world. There hasn't been drilled down into as much as perhaps it could be, uh, looking at the appropriateness of use and whether rates of particular infections in New Zealand are, are higher than other comparable countries, which is one possibility. The other is that uh, inappropriate use is, is, is higher in the community for whatever reason. I think more work needs to be done here. But what's quite clear is that in New Zealand and other countries, there is a, a large proportion of total use uh, can be reduced without any adverse consequences. And so th 
it's quite clear that there, there should be measures to, to reduce inappropriate use, both in the community and hospital settings. Am I right in thinking that countries like India and China that um, misuse of antibiotics is quite widespread, if I can put it that bluntly? Yeah, a- absolutely. Um, in India, um, antibiotics are available uh, over the counter without prescription. Um, they're widely used, widely prescribed. In addition, there's another element here, and that is that most of the major production plants, uh, the big pharmaceutical uh, production plants for antibiotics, are in India. And environmental contamination uh, from those plants is also thought to be a major problem. Uh, So a lot of the waste from these disposal plants getting into the environment, getting into the waterways, combining with poor sanitation, creates the kind of perfect storm for resistance development. Some studies have shown levels of antibiotics in waterways that are comparable to the sort of therapeutic levels we would be aiming for in human patients. So this is a real problem. We've got this kind of soup of human bacteria and antibiotics in the environment that's sort of recycling through the population and uh, that's a major issue. And it's an issue for us because we live in a very global world, don't we? Perhaps you'd like to pick up on that, Susie. Yeah, well, in New Zealand, we're quite feel quite isolated, but we are still only a plane ride away from somewhere else. And and New Zealanders travel a huge amount, you know, for for pleasure as well as for business and trade. And obviously, we have lots of people coming here. And and every time we do that travel, we have an opportunity to to pick up a, essentially a resistant organism. And some of these ones that are of greatest concern can be carried by people without any issues at all. Um, so we don't really even know whether lots of these organisms are already here hiding, and we, we just don't know it. Nigel, I'll come back to you. So tell me a bit more about One Health. Um, you talk about that as a World Health Organization strategy. What are we doing here in New Zealand around that? New Zealand had... Uh, is developing its strategy around antimicrobial use and antimicrobial resistance. Uh, So this is a joint initiative, Ministry of Health, Ministry of Primary Industries, to try and meet the the WHO requirement for us to develop national action plans, along with all other other countries around the world. So the bringing together of the Ministry of Primary Industries, the Ministry of Health, uh, very much is embracing that One Health approach. So it's bringing together veterinary, agricultural, horticultural, as well as human use, uh, and considering surveillance of both usage and resistance in both uh, humans, animals, and and the environment simultaneously, as well as also developing strategies for infection control and other ways of reducing the use of antimicrobials and reducing resistance. So it's a way of uh, ensuring you have a systems approach and you're not just considering either human health or animal health in silos. You're actually combining efforts and making sure they're closely aligned. So New Zealand, like many other countries around the world, is embracing this One Health approach, which I think is absolutely essential if we're really to tackle this problem globally. Nigel mentioned horticulture and plants there. Uh, Could you comment on that, Susie? A few years ago, we had the um, kiwi fruit uh, canker, where um, you know our kiwi fruit vines were being attacked by a bacterial disease. And maybe what people don't realise is that antibiotics were actually used as part of the the package to try and deal with that infection. Similarly, lots of uh, antifungals are used in horticulture, um, and certainly around the world the use of things like that have caused massive problems for human health, where even if the same 
uh, actual medicines aren't, aren't used in plants and humans, the resistance mechanisms are. So certainly for the fungi, there have been uh, resistant fungi in places like the Netherlands uh, that, are, that have been sort of almost grown in the garden that are uh, affecting people in hospitals. One of the key messages that I see coming out of things like the Royal Society Te Aparangi report is that actually fundamental education is very important, that we still have a lot of people in our community who don't understand what antibiotics are and what they do and how they should be used. Can you comment on that, Susie? Oh, this is a it's a it's a kind of classic thing, really, because um, lots of people don't know the difference between bacteria and viruses. And that's a fundamental thing to understand, to understand how the medicines work. It's also fundamental to understanding things like vaccination. You know, why do we have vaccines for some things and not for others? Um, and. Uh, yeah, these are all things that lots of people don't know and we need to do a much better job of, of explaining, I guess. Josh, do you think that clinicians are completely on top of how they should be prescribing things here in New Zealand? No, I think there's always always room for improvement and I think we need to we need to work on that. But I think what we do need to understand is that antibiotic resistance, essentially the major threats we face are, essentially behave like transmissible agents so they're introduced from overseas, as we were saying before, and then they spread between people who don't necessarily even have disease. And I think that understanding is also very, very important if we want to get on top of this. And so we need to have measures in our healthcare facilities that not only improve the way we use antibiotics, but prevent the spread of these organisms between patients. And so um, it's important that we have measures in place to identify people who may be carrying these bugs um, so that we can put in place more intensive and preventive measures to prevent them those them as individuals getting infections, but also to prevent them uh, inadvertently uh, spreading that organism to others who may be vulnerable to infection. So I think the kind of strategy we should have should be to create a kind of firebreak around our patients that are most vulnerable to these infections, and they would be patients in healthcare facilities. So I think that understanding is very important in addition to the understanding that antibiotic use, overuse, um, drives, uh, drives this problem. There's one fundamental thing that um, seems to be a misunderstanding that I hear all the time, and that is that some people think that it's us that become resistant and not the organisms. And so people say to me all the time, you know, oh, I don't take antibiotics because I want them to work for me next time. And, you know, it really, some again, it doesn't even matter. You may have never taken antibiotics before. You could still have a resistant organism living in you, or you could become infected with a resistant organism. And so, again, getting that message across, getting people to understand what it is um, that we're worried about uh, is, is really important. Obviously, there are veterinary clinicians as well, and I think there's a big responsibility within the veterinary profession also to reduce the use of antimicrobials and the reliance of antimicrobials or antibiotics. In, and there's been quite a lot of effort uh, that's going on at the moment and still a lot to do to try and re reduce our reliance on antibiotics in certain situations. Uh, we use quite a lot of antibiotics, for example, in, in the poultry and pig industries, and uh, much of this is to try and control diseases that are really resulting from the fact that those animals are kept in very intense uh, environments, intensively reared environments. So changes in the way we, uh, we, we use our husbandry systems or changes to our husbandry systems, increased use of vaccination and less reliance on antibiotics is really a key 
thing for the future. There's a lot of effort going on at the moment, but uh, improving uh, stewardship of antibiotics, improving the uh, prudent use or judicious use of antibiotics uh, within the veterinary and agriculture field is really important for, for making sure that they're still viable for use in human health in the future. Back to you, Susie. What's the story about developing more antibiotics? We hear a lot about how the big drug companies just aren't putting any money and effort into developing new kinds of drugs. Uh, They're very expensive to develop. They lose their effectiveness quite quickly. So is that true and what should we be doing? Uh, yes, it's absolutely true. I mean, the pharmaceutical industry have spent billions over the last you know, 20, 30 years to develop new uh, antibiotics. And and really, it's been a bit of a waste of money. And so a lot of them have sort of pulled out of this space. Um, but we absolutely need them. We certainly we need researchers to be thinking about other ways that we can tackle you know, infectious diseases. Um, but the point, you know, preventing them would be the best thing. So how do we, you know, can we get more vaccines? How do we stop people getting infected? But the crux of the matter is that we're not in the we're not there yet and so people will continue to get these infections and will continue to need medicines and so we will continue to need to develop these medicines um, and the fact that so many fail before they get into into people just shows that we need to be you know we need to have huge numbers of uh, sort of going through that development pipeline the challenge is going to be that as quickly as you develop them though organisms are going to develop resistance to them that's just the way it works isn't it well, part of that is also to do with the use of those uh, those medicines, though. So if they are used more wisely, and this is where the stewardship comes in. So if we can use them more wisely, uh, use them in better ways, use them in combination, then we should be able to, to you know, extend the time that they will be useful for. I think... The other, the other issue is the current model to incentivise production that seems to be failing uh, on a number of fronts because um, the profitability of antibiotics compared to other types of pharmaceuticals is, is inherently low for a whole variety of uh, reasons. So a number of different models for um, incentivising and, and driving research in this area are being, are being looked into. Um, and the traditional models need to be, I guess, uh, scrutinised and closely and, and, and revised. So, Josh, how do you feel about the next 10 or 20 years looking ahead? Uh, people will continue to come to hospital with infectious diseases. Um, people will continue to get infections. How are you feeling about like, how positive you are that you'll be able to effectively treat them? Well, I think there are, there are real concerns. As I said, things have, the landscape's changed a lot in the last 10 to 15 years. And if we project forward another 10 to 15 years with what we're seeing, and I'll, I'll use the example again of CPE, um, then yes, there will be major concerns because we, if, if, we, are, if we see CPE, this highly resistant uh, form of bacteria, as often as we're seeing a related not quite so resistant form of bacteria known as ESBL, if we see them as CPE as frequently as we see ESBL in another 10 to 15 years, then it's going to be a real spanner in the works for a lot of um, routine uh, procedures that we carry out. Um, People getting transplants and these sorts of things um, is all going to be, there's going to be a major risk that they'll have develop infections that are, that are extremely difficult to treat or not possible to treat uh, with antibiotics. So 
I think we need major action now. I think there are things we can do, uh, but we need to have a very focused and targeted response. And I think we need to uh, go beyond looking at antibiotic resistance as a kind of general sort of generic problem and look at the specific antibiotic resistant threats that we face and try to develop specific targeted plans uh, for the specific and most pressing uh, issues that we face, because I think that's the best hope of, of at least buying time um, for more antibiotics to be uh, come online and that sort of thing. What about the the farming landscape and the the veterinary landscape over the next ten to twenty years, Nigel? Yes, I think there's a lot of emphasis on trying to um, change the way we rear animals in order to prevent them getting infected in the first place or prevent infections from becoming a major concern for for animal health and welfare. Um, vaccine development and production, I think it's easier to do that in the veterinary sector than it is in the human health sector. Uh, but still, there's a lot of uh, diseases and conditions which are still not controllable by, by vaccination. I do think that one of the things that we do need to do in New Zealand in particular is tackle the transmission of infections from animals to people. These are called the uh, zoonotic infections, which we get via food, we get via water, um, but we also can get via direct contact, for example, with pet animals. And we have a lot of zoonotic diseases, some of which uh, are also antimicrobial-resistant infections. So making sure that we reduce the level of foodborne infection, reduce the level of waterborne infection, and also educate the uh, pet owners, for example, about contact with their pet animals, that could also help to try and reduce this problem. One thing I would say is that uh, as a researcher, obviously, I have a bit of a conflict of interest in that I do antimicrobial discovery. Um, and I'm often asked why we should do this in New Zealand and why we shouldn't leave this to other countries. Um, and I would use tuberculosis as an example of this, because if we leave things uh, to be done by other countries, they might not do the things that we need them to do. Um, and tuberculosis is a fantastic example of this, where essentially the West thought they had it sorted and just sort of left the rest of the world to get on with it. And now we have resistant strains of tuberculosis that have, you know, percolated in the rest of the world that are essentially coming back to the West to bite them. I'd just like to agree with the, the others that we need to think about reducing rates of infection in the first place and thinking about the determinants of infection. If we reduce infections, then we reduce the need for antibiotics in, uh, in the first place. And I think we need to really have this kind of, as Nigel said, the systems-based approach. We need to look upstream and think about other related interconnected issues like uh, rates of diabetes, uh, household conditions in which people are living, crowding, uh, inadequate cold, damp living conditions, which increase risk of infection, therefore increase the uh, need for antibiotics and have these kind of flow-on effects. Of, uh, so I think it's important we take that kind of big-picture perspective on the problem of antibiotic resistance as well in New Zealand. That was clinical microbiologist Joshua Freeman. And you also heard from University of Auckland microbiologist Susie Wiles and Director of the Infectious Disease Research Centre at Massey University, Nigel French. And that's all we've time for tonight. To find links to the Royal Society Te Aparangi's report on the implications of antimicrobial resistance for New Zealanders, as well as links to other RNZ stories on the subject, then head to our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. If you'd like to get in touch, we're on Facebook and Twitter as RNZ Science, and you can always email us, ourchangingworld at radionz.co.nz. Thanks for your company. 
I'll be back next week, but for now it's good night from me, Alison Balance. Kia pai tōpō. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.